holy, holy, holy. Father, we desire this morning to know your holiness. We live in a place, Lord, where it's hard to see, even in churches. We know, Lord, that in order to worship you as a people that you've set apart, we must know that you're holy. We ask that you'd show us that this morning. Show us your holiness. Show us your son, Christ. Show us the way to be delivered from our unholiness. We're so thankful you've gathered us here in a place where we can actually have your word and hear it. I pray, Lord, we never take for granted the great blessing of the gathering that you've placed here at Camden. That you'd be gracious with us, that we might be gracious with others, to share with them this great news of Christ. I ask, Lord, that your word would not fall upon deaf ears this morning that we would hear with all the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be changed, and we'd share with others that they too might be delivered. I ask these things, Lord, that your Son, Jesus Christ, might be glorified. He is worthy of it. In his name, amen. Good morning. Many lost souls today have gathered in churches, or so-called churches. Many thousands of people in the South Bay got in their cars this morning just like you, and they went to places that call themselves churches, and there is no gospel there. If there is no gospel, there is no life. There's no hope of being delivered from sin. I don't think I've ever come here on a Sunday morning more thankful than to be here. More thankful that you're here. That you might hear God. We must be praying for all those lost who don't know they're lost. There's so many who claim Christ and don't know Christ. We must be praying for those men who call themselves pastors who don't preach the gospel of grace. Pray for them. And by his grace, we'll have a chance to talk to them. We have an extraordinary passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 22. If you have a Bible, open up there. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, raise your hand and I'll have one brought from the back. Does anybody not have a Bible that they'd like to look at? Okay, good. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, we had a chance last week to begin looking at a psalm. It It is a a piece of poetry written by David. And and it has to do with, as we saw last week, there are three main pieces. Um, 
Last week, we, we saw the suffering that takes place for the Messiah and for David. And, and this week, we get to look at the deliverance from that. And next week, we get to look at the victory of it. And, and all of us, when we go through struggles, I, I imagine most of you, have you suffered through hard times? Oftentimes, it's not the suffering itself that's so difficult. It's trying to find some sense of peace and some deliverance in the midst of the suffering to get through it. You know, trying to find any hope or peace or comfort or deliverance apart from Christ is impossible, and we know that. Staying and wallowing in our troubles is, is not how the believer, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is to go through this life, is to embrace these troubles. We're supposed to, we're supposed to press on in Christ and press into Christ, and then the Scriptures tell us to cry out to Him. The psalmist says in Psalm 107, verse 6, that they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he always does with his children. Physically sometimes, but always spiritually. God always delivers us spiritually as his strength is made perfect in our weakness. God is faithful to deliver his people. Last week, David was speaking of his own suffering and his own desire to be delivered from the hand of Saul. But more importantly, as Pastor Kurt pointed out, he was pointing to the Christ. It was prophecy. And he was pointing to the one who would come and who would suffer and who would cry out and by God's grace would be delivered. And he was speaking of Christ. In fact, look at verse 7 as we ended last week. And I want you to hear Christ saying this to the Lord. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. We saw Jesus go to the Father in his darkest, darkest time. And that's not the garden. In his greatest time of need, and the Father heard his voice. And this week in verses 8 through 29, I want us to see the Father's response. We saw the suffering when we saw the travail of Christ last week. And then he cries out and he says in verse 7 that he heard his voice in his throne room. God the Father received the cry. But what did he do? What did he do? This morning, by his grace, I want to show you. I want to show you how he responded to Christ. And I want to, I want to show you, and I want you to hear it so badly. I want, to, I want to show you what, how he will respond to you if you cry out for mercy in Christ as well. If you do. Three things this morning. The fury of God. The deliverance of the Christ and the saving of his people. The fury of God. The deliverance of Christ and the saving of his people. Let's look at the first point. Verses 8 through 16. This is a psalm. It's poetry. We don't do well with poetry. Not any longer. We used to. Most of you, if you have an undergraduate degree, maybe you were forced to take a class in poetry and you couldn't wait for it to end. Poetic genre is in the Bible, not just because it sounds beautiful, although it does. Poetic genre is a form of revelation that God gives us at particular points in time because it better communicates who he is and what he's doing compared to an epistle or a narrative. This poetry is meant to 
heighten our senses and fill our imaginations with the majesty and the power here of the living God, and specifically how this living God delivers his anointed, how he does it. The Holy Spirit superintended this poetic imagery to help us better see its reality, to capture our minds on it. For David, it was the case of being delivered from Saul. Prophetically, for Christ, it's when he cries out from the grave, from the tomb, and God the Father hears his voice. The undertones of this are so messianic. I heard a couple of people saying, well, this is David talking, not Christ. It is David talking, and David's certainly talking about his deliverance as well. But, but more importantly, when you read this, you cannot escape its messianic influence. It's everywhere, and I'll show you that today. David was prophesying a thousand years beforehand how God the Father would hear the cry of Jesus Christ from the tomb and answer that plea. But before he does that, he expresses his fury. I want to show you here. Look at verses 8 with me. Just follow along if you have your Bible. This passage begins with a rumble, literally a rumble. Verse 8, Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he, God the Father, was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. And he bowed the heavens and he came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows, and he scattered them, lightning, and he routed them. And the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of his breath of his nostrils. It's fantastic. Do you have the imagery? Do you have the word picture in your mind? Because that's why the Holy Spirit has us here. God harnessing all of his creation, all of nature, to reveal his power and hear his anger. This is an angry God. Heavens and earth tremble. Smoke comes from his nostrils. Fire from his mouth. He was surrounded by darkness, soaring on the wind, sending bolts of lightning. God the Father, in his holy temple, heard the cry of Christ. And this is his response. Fury. Anger that only poetry can even get us close to. You can't do a a systematic, didactic teaching on this. Poetry gets us close, but we still miss it. This is God's anger. Listen to some of the verbs. Spewing forth fire, coming down in thick darkness, riding on angels, laying bare in both sea and land. The image is so vivid and so powerful. If it doesn't terrify you, you're not hearing it. It terrifies me. This is an angry God. It's reminiscent of Moses' song, coming out of Exodus. It reminds me of of God coming down on Mount Sinai 
In Exodus chapter 19, he blasted, he spewed forth, he came down, he thundered, he laid bare, he's angry. He's angry. It is a formidable expression of the terrible wrath God himself will bring. Listen closely to all those enemies of Christ and enemies of God's church. This is his response. So many will hear this and say, but why? Why all the wrath? What have we done to deserve such a thing? Of this response, of this thundering God. Most churches today, finding great numerical success, promote these questions by preaching messages that have nothing to do with God's terrible wrath or His holy anger. They stay away from such teachings, in part, we know, because that doesn't attract crowds, it certainly won't bring in the masses. But I think at a much deeper level, such topics are avoided because American Christians and many of their pastors do not believe they have done anything deserving of such divine retribution and wrath. We don't believe it. A slap on the hand, maybe. A spiritual timeout, maybe. But God responding in all the fury of all his power, harnessing all of creation... Matthew chapter 21. Jesus was teaching in the temple courts and he shared a perfect parable that I think nullifies this illusion that we ought not see God's wrath in this matter. I'm going to read to you. It's an amazing parable. Listen closely. Why is God so angry with humanity? He tells us why. Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to begin reading at verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? What do you think? They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. The master of the house is God. The servants who are beaten and killed are the prophets of old. The son, obviously, is Jesus Christ. And the wicked tenants are the unbelieving Jews. And you say, glad that's not me. Their rebellion and hostility towards God that led to the murder of the Son is emblematic of all mankind. Paul said clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
That means all of mankind is at enmity with God apart from Jesus Christ. We too have crucified the Savior. We too are responsible for His blood. And if you think for a moment that you would have stood there and you would have raised your hand and you would have said, don't kill that man, then you're equally delusional. The Bible clearly teaches that we are all born in sin and we are all hostile to the presence of God and the work of Christ unless he changes our hearts. We're hostile to it. We are at war with him. But God, being so gracious and so good, so rich in mercy and so compassionate, he sent Christ, the son who would die, into the world to save us from ourselves, to save us from our hatred. To save us from the fate of these wicked tenants and the miserable death they would experience. But instead of receiving the master's son, when he came the first time, 2,000 years ago, we did the same thing. We didn't receive him with joy. We didn't hear the message. We cast him out of the vineyard. We put him out of the city. And we nailed him to a cross. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? When he comes in his consuming fire, when he comes thundering from heaven, when he comes riding on the wind, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. Yahweh heard the cries of Christ. Fury. When Jesus was crucified, we're told in the gospel accounts that the earth shook. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We are told that the tombs were opened. And from 12 to 3, the sky went black fulfilling the prophecy we have here in 2 Samuel chapter 22. But this is just a foretaste of what it will be like when God comes and all of his fury in the end. It is a justified response. This holy God against a people who put his innocent son to death. This fury is a right, holy, just response It is a justified response of a loving God who sent His Son to save wretches like us. The very ones who hate Him. The culture, the Western church does not understand the anger of God because we refuse to see ourselves as murderers of Christ. Period. Somebody else maybe. Another time, but not us. We refuse to see that there's blood on our hands. We do not properly meditate on the sacrifice that God made. We do not properly understand that God is justified in his fury. But we must. I mean, we must. We, we saw last week, and we'll see again today, that David cried out for mercy, and God granted him mercy. How will you cry out for mercy if you do not realize that you are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? How will you cry out for mercy if you do not see that your end is eternal damnation apart from a Savior? How? You won't. So God thunders and He comes that we might see, that we might see and we might repent and be delivered.
Now, friends, if I have scared you, I pray that it's not I, the word of God, that it should terrify you. The divine power revealed here in these poetic verses, it wasn't just an expression of God's power in bringing his fury and his wrath. It is a foretaste of the same power that God used to deliver Christ and that God will use to deliver you. Same power. Let's look at the next point. Are you still here? The deliverance of the Christ. Look at verse 17. He sent from on high. Listen listen to Christ say this now. They are his words. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The imagery that we get here from this poetic piece is one of complete deliverance. And and certainly David can talk about this in the context of his life. We know that now. We we have the narrative of David played out for the most part. And so, I mean, we know going all the way back to when David was a shepherd, God delivered him from the hands of lions and bears. We know that early on in the ministry, he delivered him from Goliath. He delivered him from the Philistines. He's writing here in the context of this psalm, likely after being delivered from Saul, King Saul. And we also know that he was delivered from his son Absalom. So David can rightly call upon the great work of God, drawing him up out of the waters of death, rescuing him from his strong enemies. David can say this, bringing him into a broad place. Do you know what that expression means? A broad place? It's, it's a Hebrew idiom, which, which means freedom out of bondage, into a broad place, released from the bondage of sin. So certainly David could recall this, but there's a double purpose here, and I would, I would have to argue a more complete understanding of this word in the deliverance of Jesus Christ from the tomb. After Christ was crucified and, and took the right punishment for the sins of many, He was put into a tomb and he was there for three days. And then we know that on the third day, on the resurrection Sunday, many of you call it Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead. We know that. God the Father took Jesus out of the tomb. He drew him out of death, out of many baptismal waters. He brought out the Christ. In fact, verse 18, it directs our gaze at the answer. It is the answer to verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. If this is Christ saying, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Look at verse 18. Here's the answer. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. I mean, this is the great battle, right? This is the battle between the Son of God and darkness itself. This is the battle for life, for redemption. And God is victorious. He rescues Jesus from his strong enemy, from those who hated him. We're told in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. God saved 
Christ from hell. He pulled him out. He heard the cry, and he delivered the son. He shook the earth. The sky went black because he delighted in the Savior. This is, as you know, this is the great work of the resurrection. Our, our entire hope as a people is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said clearly, if there is no resurrection, if Christ never rose from the dead, then you of all people are most to be pitied because that means you cannot rise either. But if Christ rose and you're in Christ, you can rise too. If we are to have any hope of getting through any struggles on this side, or more importantly, when we come before God, if we are to have any hope, then God's holiness had to be satisfied. Sin had to be paid for. Justice against mankind, the enemies, the wicked tenants, had to be dealt with. And we are those wicked tenants. From our inception, we have sinned against God. We have railed against God. And therefore, we need a Savior. We need a substitute. We need someone who's going to come in and take what we rightly deserve. If there's any hope for any of us of being saved, then someone has to take our punishment that we might have life. Because if we don't have that, we have only death. There is no deliverance apart from that. On the cross, you know this. But we can't say it enough. We can't say it enough to ourselves. We can't contemplate it enough. On the cross, Jesus Christ took your sins, the punishment for your sins, he bore it in his body, which included a suffering of hell. So you could be delivered. So I could be delivered. So our end of being at enmity with God, at war with God, wouldn't end in our destruction because anyone who continues to war against God ends in condemnation. You don't win. God raised his son from the dead. He delivered him from the grave. Once that payment was made, once Christ said, it's finished, I've received the full, due, just punishment of the sins of all those who will be saved. Once that was complete, but that had to take place first. Christ had to die. He had to suffer, and he had to suffer your punishment. But once that was complete, God says, I will deliver you. He didn't stay in the tomb. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God delivered him. He didn't just rescue him from the grave. He ascended him into glory where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He brought him glory and honor and majesty and power. He gave to this Christ, this Savior of man. Jesus Christ was rewarded. He was seated at God's right hand. He became the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who he is right now. Look at verses 21 and following. Christ now says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. 
and I kept myself from guilt and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And here we have the great truth of why God the Father did this with the Son. Why didn't God the Father leave Christ in the grave? You say, well, that wasn't the plan. Of course not. But God actually tells us why here. Because of his righteousness. Because Jesus Christ was perfectly clean. This, is, this can only be talking about Jesus. A man who, who was born, who lived, and who died a morally perfect life. Sinless. Sinless. It's, it's so beautifully put in the passage, both in the positive and the negative. Look at verse 22. He kept the ways of the Lord. He did not depart from God. Verse 23, he kept all of God's laws. He never turned away from his decrees. Verse 24, he was blameless before God. He never sinned. Now certainly David, before his, his fall with Bathsheba, could in a general sense make these statements, but not literally. There's no way he could talk about always keeping the law of God, always keeping his decrees, being blameless, never sinning. Only one man in all of human history fits that bill, and that's Christ. Only one man can say, I have never sinned. I am clean in God's sight. And the reward for this was what? It was deliverance and glory. The reward for Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness was being delivered from hell and placed in glory forever and ever. We're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, that God raised Jesus up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That term, pangs of death, even the word pang we don't use much. It's translated literally suffering in childbirth. And that is the comparison that's made in the context here of death in the grave. Applied here to Christ, it's his being bound. It's him being imprisoned. It's a picture of Christ suffering hell. Extreme suffering. When death comes, it presses on man and it confines him to an inescapable suffering. The Bible calls this hell. We believe this to be real. The psalmist said in Psalm 116, verses 3 and 4, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol, hell, laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And God delivered Christ. It is not possible, and it was not possible, for death to hold the Holy One, the Perfect One, in the grave. Couldn't do it. Why? Why? I mean, why is that? Why couldn't Jesus stay dead? What does the Bible say about Christ? He is the author of life. He is life himself. The Bible said he is the water, the living water. It says he is the bread of life. The Bible says that he had the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. In Hebrews 2.14, the Bible says that he came so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is who? That is the devil. The very purpose of Christ's coming was to die. You say, well, that seems odd. Not if he's a savior. Not if he was dying on our behalf. Christ came that he might destroy the power of death once and for all. He came that he might suffer and die. And then in overcoming death, he would rise again. And he had to rise again. 
Because if he did not, then death would be victorious. But death could not hold him because he is life. And what's so glorious about this is that this life then is imparted to all who repent and believe. God's fury over the crucifixion of the Christ. God's deliverance of Jesus Christ from the pangs of death, the bondage of hell, is poured out to us. Last point. Verses 26 and following. How he delivers his church. Verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. The great work of Jesus Christ on the cross... The primary purpose of that, you know what it was, but you know what it is. It involves us, but that's not the primary purpose. The great work of Jesus Christ on the cross is to bring God glory. You say, well, how does he do that? By redeeming a people for himself. The great work of Jesus Christ on the cross is to bring the God the Father glory by redeeming people, by saving souls, by making for himself a people that will worship him now and forever. We know that as a result of our sin, we're disqualified from this. And so God took the extreme measure, and it was so extreme, by having God the Son killed in order to satisfy His holy wrath. That fury is real, and that fury cannot just go away. It must be satisfied. So the very thing that God's wrath was poured out about was poured out on the same one, Christ. And so God is able to, because of the crucifixion and death of Christ, he's able to, without compromising his holiness, even one moment, come to us and show mercy to the merciless. He's able to come to us and treat us as blameless, even though we're guilty. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, this is such an amazing thing, He can come to those of us like you and me so impure and treat us purely. Why? Because of the work of Christ. Because of the work of Christ. Through God's grace and faith in Christ, he can look at you and say, holy, holy, holy. Christ paid for your sin and then he puts his righteousness on you. He puts it on you. He puts his mercy on you. He puts his blamelessness on you. He puts his purity on you. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all this is a free gift for all who cry out for it. Everyone who cries out for mercy, who says to the Lord, forgive me for my sins, Lord. I know they are they're crimson, they're red, I am stained. Forgive me, Lord. All those who cry out and turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ, he does 
gives you mercy. And then he sees you. Now and becoming holy as he is holy. To receive and become merciful and blameless and pure by the power of God is a necessary condition of salvation. It's necessary. It's necessary for us to be delivered from our sins and it's necessary for us to receive the mercy and grace and purity of Christ. We must have that in order to be saved. You say, well, why is that? Look at verse 27. God, he said, with the crooked, he will make himself seem torturous. It will be so. For all those who are not delivered from the pangs of death, for all those who do not receive the mercy of Christ, it will be torture forever. This has to be of first importance in our lives. It it has to be the greatest importance of all those in our lives. If we believe this to be true, then all those in our midst, all those people we see every day, apart from being delivered by God and receiving His mercy and grace and righteousness, they will know nothing but torture. That keeps me up at night. Didn't sleep much last night. It ought you. Thousands upon thousands of people here in our backyard who have not been delivered. Their end is so catastrophic that if they were just to get a glimpse of it, there'd be hope. It doesn't matter how good or bad your days are here on earth. When you come before a holy God and you are judged for the life you have lived apart from Jesus Christ, it will not be blameless, it will be guilty. It will not be pure, it will be defiled. And this holy God who is a good God who must punish sin will condemn you to hell. My friends, I need you to hear this. There is nothing on this side of heaven more important than knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Nothing. Not for you, not for your family, not for your enemy. That means we've got to communicate in some way a clear understanding of the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. We must communicate that with people. So many think that there's no need to fear God because He's not a holy God. But the Bible tells us otherwise. And we know it in our hearts. We must communicate His absolute purity. Somehow, by God's grace, we must open our mouths with the Word of God and communicate to people of their total depravity. That we're not just a little bad or a little off, 
But our hearts, our hearts through and through are dark and sinful and hateful. That means every sin, every sin must be looked at as utterly sinful. That's what the Bible says. Why? Because it is committed against a perfectly good, pure God. There is no small sin committed against a holy God. If I spill a cup of coffee on a brown suit, you'll see a blemish. But when it dries, I have experience in this. When it dries on a brown suit, it's just partially blemished. It doesn't look that bad. Take that same cup of coffee and spill it on your white, bleached, ironed, pinpoint Oxford shirt. And it is a blemish. It is hideous. Every sin, regardless of how small or insignificant you think it is in your mind, is against a God that is whiter than snow, purer than pure, so glaring. My beloved, by seeing his holiness, by by seeing the depth of our sin, by seeing the need for a Savior, we will, by God's grace, be humble to the point of crying out for mercy. Look at verse 28. 28 says, you have, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. You know in the list, in Proverbs chapter 6, of the seven things that God detests most, you know that's at the top of the list, haughty eyes, haughty eyes. What is a haughty eye? You know what a haughty eye is. A haughty eye is an expression of a pride-filled heart. And a pride-filled heart will not recognize God's holiness. A pride-filled heart will, will say, how dare you judge me, God? A pride-filled heart will not recognize God as creator and judge and king and Lord. A pride-filled heart refuses to see the darkness of the human heart. But instead, it paints a picture so hideous that everybody's fine. It paints a picture for themselves and all of humanity that God is good and man is good and all will be saved and no need for a savior and no need for a cross and no need for blood. Everybody just needs to relax. Haughty eyes refuse to believe the absolute necessity of God saving man. And so instead we come up with all these other forms of self-salvation we think, well, if I'm a good father, God will save me. Or if I'm a doting mother, God will save me. Or if I'm an obedient son or daughter to my parents, then God will save me. Or if I get straight A's, maybe God will save me. Or if I'm a really good employee, then maybe God will save me. But creating a way of salvation all your own is nothing more than a deadly delusion. I mean, what a feeble attempt to reshape life, death, and eternity in your mind. It's make-believe. I heard a Catholic priest recently say at a memorial service for a dear friend that the, the person who leaves this place better than when he got here will be saved. Says who? Who says that? 
Not God. Not the Bible. Not the Creator. That's man-made. That's hateful. And as I sat there looking at probably two, three hundred people, how many believe that? Deliverance comes only to those who know Jesus Christ. Know Him. It comes only to those who have been set free from the pangs of death and have been delivered into the broad place, into the place of peace with God. Because unless that deliverance takes place, you're still at enmity with God. Only those who are delivered by Christ into the grace, into the love, into the forgiveness of the cross, into the power of God to save you will be saved. Last verse. Look at me in verse 29. David writes, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. David knew that it would only be by God's power coming into the darkness of the human heart that man could be made alive. He got that. He knew it would require the light of Christ to come into such darkness because the heart is so dark, it requires the light of God. There's no other light that can penetrate the depth of the darkness of the human heart. And only God can do that. Only God can redeem the soul from hell. Only God has that power. A blind man needs to be given sight in order to see. A deaf man needs to be given ears to hear. Someone who is dead needs to be made alive. Well, who can do that? Only God can do that, and only God wants to do that. All of our other pseudo-saviors, all those other means that we try to save ourselves, they are all destructive ends. All they do is end in destruction and consume us. God is the one who can save, and God is the only one who wants to save. You remember what I said at the very beginning, that one of the greatest struggles many of us face in the midst of suffering is not the suffering itself, it's trying to find some peace and some deliverance in the midst of it? My friends, I pray that you'll put aside your haughty eyes and your prideful hearts. I pray that you will see the great deliverance God offers to all through his Son, Jesus Christ. To all through his Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you will see the great deliverance that God made of Jesus from the tomb. He rescued him from hell. And by his grace, I pray that you will put your faith in him this morning to save you, regardless of how long you have professed his name. You need saving grace this day. We all do. I pray that in your coming to Christ and having him as Lord, that you will have his desires become your desires. You'll have his ways become your ways. Your life will belong to him. You will submit to him. And when you call him Lord, you'll mean it. You'll mean it. That means with your job and with your money and with your children and with your marriage, with your whole life, you will submit to him. You say, well, how do I do that? By knowing his word. 
I pray that you will come to Christ today and enjoy the deliverance that God offers from the trials of this life, but more importantly, from the judgment that is to come. I pray that you will be blessed in a community of believers coming together, gathering and learning and praying together as we strengthen one another, as we encourage one another during these really hard times. I pray that you will participate in a community that will bless you and be blessed by you. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness. You, you were darkness. Not in darkness, but you were darkness. But then he says, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. It's our desire here at Camden to be a people of light. The people who walk as God's children. And that means not just when life is good, but also when life is really hard. That your light shines. My beloved, many of you need this day to be delivered from anxiety and fear. Many of you. So many of my discussions with you are around anxiety and fear. Christ can deliver you from that now. He can give you a peace that transcends all understanding. That's what the Bible says. Many of you this morning need to be delivered from lustful thoughts from impure minds, still committing adultery, still pursuing in your mind members of the opposite sex. Be delivered from that this morning. Many of you need to be delivered from covetousness, a life of total dissatisfaction, always wanting something else, always wanting something more. Christ can deliver you from that this morning. Many of you need to be delivered from greed and gluttony, from a lack of faith, from anger, from depression. I would say most of us need to be delivered from mediocrity and complacency. I hate those words of the church at Laodicea. He said, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. <clears throat> some of you, some of you need to be delivered from your said faith to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you from professing to actually knowing Jesus you can profess with your mouth, but if you don't know Christ, and there is no deliverance. Today is the day of salvation. Do that today. That is the greatest crisis you will ever face, coming into the presence of a holy God apart from the Savior. I know I speak on your behalf when I say that we want to walk and shine as brilliant lights in this very dark place, this dark place. I want to. I know you do. And we want to for the right reason, I pray. That is that our light may shine before men in such a way that all people, all people will see our good deeds. They'll see the light of Christ and they will glorify God in heaven. That's why we're still here, to bring him honor and glory. That's why he hasn't brought you home yet. There's work to be done. There's glory to be given. I pray this morning.
that you see his fury and his deliverance in Christ. See both. I pray this morning that you've been emboldened to take the same message of God's wrath and his deliverance out to the unsaved. Go to them and tell them Tell them about the broad place. Tell them that there's a way to be delivered from it. Tell them there's a way to stand pure before a holy God. Tell them. Maybe by God's grace, they too, look at verse 5. They too will then say, once hearing the gospel of grace, they too will say, for the waves of death encompassed me and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. But in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Maybe, how glorious. How glorious. Let's pray. Holy God, we are thankful that you have shared with us and revealed to us the right fury you have for a people that killed your son. We're so thankful, Father, that that's not the end of the narrative. That in the midst of our rebellion and our sin and our hatred and our murder, you offer us mercy, deliverance. I praise you for the work of Christ. I thank you that he was willing to do this great work on our behalf. I thank you that you've received this offering and it's pleasing to you. And as a result, Lord, you save many. Save us. Save all those, Lord, that, that we have a chance to share the gospel with. Make us bold in our testimony to open our mouths and speak the truth in love. I pray, Lord, that we would not hide this deliverance, but that we would live in light of it as the light of the world. You are such a good God. You are so worthy of all praise now and forever. Draw us into that this morning, Lord, I pray. Bring us into that glory. We might magnify it out. I praise you for those you've gathered here today. I praise you for bringing us to this place where the gospel might go out. Let it, let it go out from this place, Father, please. Let it go to those places where it's not this morning. If some here would go, be pleased in that. Please. For your glory. For Christ's name. 
We ask these things, Father, because of our love for Jesus and our desire for him to be lifted up. So we ask that your will be done. In Christ's name, amen.